in today's world, that there's no such thing as absolute truth, or that truth is, is something that's ambiguous, or that it's, it's all relative, it's all a matter of opinion. Um, and, and our goal this evening is to look at what the Bible has to say about that. But first, we're going to look even deeper on what the world believes about the concept of truth. So to, to begin with, um, we're going to talk about several of these things that, that I hear people say in the world on a daily basis, it seems like. And I'm sure that you all hear some of these same comments as well. But um, a lot of people will say, you know, truth just hurts my feelings because truth alienates and truth condemns. And if there is such a thing as objective truth, well, then that means heaven is exclusive. And if there is such a thing as truth, then what if one of my family members wasn't walking in the truth? Well, then that means that heaven is exclusive and they're not a part of the heavenly kingdom. You know, truth, truth hurts feelings and it, and it alienates. It makes people feel isolated if there's an objective truth. But you know, a lot of the times people in the world try to customize Christ too, though. Um, and they make statements like, my God and I understand each other. Or my God understands me. They, he knows who I am. And he speaks to me. He tells me that I'm in a right relationship with him. My God and I, we're, we're good. We're on the same page with each other. You know, I just know that I'm saved because he puts that feeling in my heart. He just, he tells me, he lets me know that I'm in a right condition with him. Or, or he lives in my heart. He's, he's in here and I feel him. I feel him inside of me. Well, that's, those are people trying to customize Christ and, and making Christ their own version of, of God or their own version of a savior. People in the world, they, you know, they're so quick also to say, we are, ought not to judge one another. Uh, you know, we, we can't tell somebody that they're wrong, or we can't show error in someone's life. But the Bible shows that, you know, we're not going to go too far in depth. It's not the topic of the lesson about judgment. But the Bible does say that we can, we can judge according to a righteous standard, and that righteous standard being the word of truth. And that we're also not to judge uh, hypocritically. But that judgment is certainly... Uh, something that the Bible does encourage us to do when we do follow that and, and judge according to the righteous standard. Well, a lot of people also, they don't focus on God's word. Um, they focus on their own feelings, their own intuition. They'll say things like, how could a, a loving God ever go about punishing someone for all of eternity? That's not something that a loving God would do. They make these emotional arguments. They say things like, how can water have absolutely anything to do with my sins? You know, what if I was on the way uh, to, to, in the car driving down the road to go get baptized when all of a sudden a tractor-trailer truck hits me and, and, and I lose my life? Well, so th those are all, all emotional arguments. They're, they're trying to make the argument of, you know, the physical water has, has no properties of salvation rather than focusing on God's Word. Or they'll say things like, like Drew mentioned this morning, it's all a matter of interpretation. You know, they think we can look at Bible passages and, and one of us reads it one way and the other reads it the other way. Or they'll say something like, that's just your opinion. Um, I was talking to Haley's grandfather, um, this was a few weeks ago, and, and he was talking about this spiritual conversation that he was having with, with a, a, a woman that, that he, they were talking about the concept of baptism. And he brought her to Mark 16, verse 16, when it says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And her response to that, well, 
well, it's just your opinion. And, and so he's, he's pointing to her directly right here. It's in black and white. That I'm, I'm not trying to make any opinion. I'm just trying to show you what the text says. But that's, that's the nature of how people view the concept of truth, that you can't say that there's an objective truth. Now, to dive even deeper on this subject, um, we're going to look at four different philosophies that the world holds. They may not give it these titles. Some of them may. Um, but these are titles that, that go along with certain types of philosophies that the world has regarding the nature of truth. The first one is called individualism. And, and for this, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, individualism is the, the concept that there is no objective standard. Um, individualism, now someone might say, uh, now you believe in baptism by sprinkling, and, and that's your truth. That's your version of the truth, and that's great. Now, another person may have their version of the truth that says baptism is immersion in water. And, and you know, you're both pleasing to God in your own way. Now, that's, that, the, the, at the heart of that is this concept of this philosophy of individualism. Or someone might say, you know, you believe in, in once saved, always saved. And, and that's good. That's your version of the truth, and you're entitled to that. Um, but, you know, I believe that, that you're not saved for all of eternity is at the moment of salvation, but that you do have to continue working out your salvation in fear and trembling. But, you know, that's my version of the truth, and, and you're entitled to your version of the truth just the same. That's this concept of individualism. You know, if you don't force your belief on others, we're all going to get along, um, as long as you don't tell someone else what to believe or, or what to think on, the, on their own. Um, this isn't a new way of believing. As a matter of fact, this is a, a philosophy or, or a logical reasoning argument that, that's been around for all of time. Um, we can see that in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 2 says, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. What happens when, when the world falls into this concept of individualism is everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And it doesn't cause anything except for chaos in the world. Because what happens is everyone becomes their own standard. Because there is no objective standard. This is one way that the world perceives truth. Another is, is this concept of situation ethics. Now, situation ethics is, is this concept or this logic that, there, that, that there's no morality, that there's no true uh, objective sense of morality, um, and that it's all ambiguous. Now, situation ethics, really, it's, it, it, it all follows one guiding principle, and that one guiding principle is, is the concept of love. And as long as we have love in our hearts, in everything that we act, in every, any, everything that we do, as long as we're doing it out of love, then that would say that, situation ethics would say that that, that is not wrong. Um, situation ethics can justify almost anything if it's done for the right reason, and that right reason being love. But when we think about this concept, wouldn't then situation ethics, wouldn't it justify adultery? Because if it's done out of love, if you're feeling that love and connection with someone else that's not your spouse, isn't that justifying that under this notion of situation ethics? Or lying. What about telling someone, you know, shading the truth to not hurt their feelings? But if you're doing it out of love, 
then that's what situation ethics would say. You know, it's all right. You're justified in that action. You can lie. You can have adultery. You can commit adultery. You could, what if it's murder? It would justify that if done for the right reasons or theft. Uh, if you're just stealing from, you know, robbing from Peter to pay Paul, you're doing that out of love. And, and that's, that's really the road that this leads down is that almost anything could be justified if done for the right reason. And then also consider the fact that what looks like the right reason to one person might not even look like the right reason for for someone else at all. And in that way, every person becomes our own law and our own judge, rather than looking back to the objective standard of God's truth. So that's the concept of situation ethics. Well, another one, another philosophy in the world that is incredibly uh, very prevalent is this notion of postmodernism. Um, postmodernism. I want to take just a moment to to really define what I mean by postmodernism. Naturally, it, it's a compound word. It has the the prefix post, um, meaning after, and it means after modernism. So we have to kind of understand what modernism is first before we can really understand postmodernism. Now, modernism was something that was really uh, prevalent in about the 60s, 70s. Um, and modernism was something, it was a philosophy that everything was very rationalistic. Everything was trying to be proven by science or um, something that's very logical, very reasonable. And, and that was really the concept of modernism, is that, that we were looking for scientific proof for everything. Now, that necessarily um, negated the, the belief in miracles and, and things like that because miracles weren't able to be proven logically. So modernism worked against God's word and God's truth, but then even more so, postmodernism has actually flipped on the concept of modernism, and now nothing is, is guided by rationalism or by logic and now everything is guided by feelings and intuition. Essentially, postmodernism has, has done the exact opposite of what modernism has done in our society. Now, postmodernism, as we've said, it, it, it rejects this logic and reason. It puts all of its emphasis on intuition and feelings. As a matter of fact, the cardinal sin of someone that is post, in a postmodern world is claiming that there is an objective truth. That is uh, the worst thing you could possibly tell a postmodernist is that there is an objective truth and a standard by which we should live. Well, where does this concept lead? This is what leads to the notion of if it feels good, then how could it possibly be wrong? Because if your feelings and your intuition guide you, then, then your feelings and intuition are telling you that sinful acts are wrong. You know, there's sinful acts that feel good, like going out and drinking or, or smoking, getting high, things like that, that, that may feel good to a person when they're doing it. And, and that's the road that this leads down, is that justifies it. If you live a life based on feelings and, and what feels right, um, that justifies things like uh, premarital relations, out, you know, outside of, outside of marriage. If it feels right, it must be right. That's the world that we live in. If it feels good, how could it possibly be wrong? Think about the same thing with um, those that, that worship God in their own ways, that don't follow after his pattern, after his standard, his objective truth. You know, if the music feels good, then it must feel good to God, too. If the music makes me feel those tingles that come up my arm, that's the spirit moving in me, and that must mean that, that God likes it, too. This same concept leads to the notion that, you know, if I feel like a boy, I must be a boy. 
Or if I, if I feel like a girl today or tomorrow, then, then all of a sudden I can be a girl. It's, it's the very thing that leads us today to be told that there are seven genders when the Bible tells us that there's in fact two. And we know that there's two. We listen to logic and reason. But the world around us does not. This is not something that's new for many of us. As a matter of fact, we're, we're surrounded by this each and every day. And that's the very reason that I wanted to speak on this topic. Because this is the world that we live in of postmodernism. Postmodernism is, is so prevalent in our society that it's something that we have to be aware of what it is. It's that feelings and intuition are the standard. That there is no objective truth anymore, but that we listen to our feelings and our emotions instead. Well, there's also a philosophy in the world of doctrinal relativism. Now, this, this statement is, is really where, at the heart, we hear things like, truth is all relative. Um, this is the, the concept that we have to be politically correct with everything we do, even in religion. As a matter of fact, a lot of people that believe in this doctrinal relativism, they go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, let's go there at this time. We're going to read verses 4 through 6. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, those that proclaim doctrinal relativism, that truth is all relative, they look at this and they say, see, there's one. That means that we're all one. Now, they're obviously misapplying this passage, which to us, we read this and we see pretty clearly in black and white, there's one body. There's only one God. There's one spirit. There's one faith. There's one baptism. All of this sounds pretty exclusive, but now the world will read this and say, there's one. That means we're all one. We're all together in this world. And, and we're all, you know, as long as we meet a minimum standard of pleasing God, then we fall into this oneness, this group of, of all being one in the world together. That's this concept. At the heart of this, what it really boils down to is an unwillingness to draw a line in the sand. An unwillingness to let other people feel excluded or feel like they're not right. It's, it's, uh, it's all about this concept, this notion of being politically correct. Um, to further illustrate this, I, I, there's a, uh, an, kind of an analogy that, that I'd like to paint a picture here for just a moment. So all of you imagine that, <clears throat> that we're in a big, wide open field as far as the eye can see. And now we're in a group. We're in a flock of sheep. All right. So you think of this flock of sheep that, that we're in. We're in a, a tight-knit group and, and we're protected by a fence that surrounds us. Now, the world would tell us, you can't build that fence. You can't build that fence because what it does is it excludes the other sheep out there. <clears throat> and, and, you know, right outside of that fence are, are those that, that use their money in the wrong way, that use their money to support a college or, or an orphan's home. And, and, you know, we can't possibly exclude them. So we're going to have to break down that section of our fence and rebuild it around that other group because that's the politically correct thing to do. That's what the world would tell us to do. But then to go further, we can't condemn a church just because it tries to bring in a crowd by giving away free coffee and donuts. We can't possibly, I mean, they're just, all they're trying to do is bring in a bigger crowd so they can teach more people the gospel. So you know what? We're going to have to knock down another section of our fence and build it back around so that we can include more sheep in our flock. We can't condemn a church just because it tries to make the message of Christ more inviting. 
like preaching faith alone or, or preaching once saved, always saved. It's just trying to soften that message just to make it more appealing so that more people can learn about God and more people can become Christians. So you know what? We're, we're going to knock down another portion of our fence and build it around the next group of sheep. We would have to say, you know, we can't condemn a church just because it approves of sinners. After all, we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, and we all serve the same God. So you know what? Just because a church approves of, of sin and, and welcomes it into their flock, you know, we're going to have to knock that next section of fence down. And now we're almost as far as the eye can see, where you know, there's not really a fence anymore. There still is, but it's way off in the distance. But you know, we would also have to say, we can't condemn a church just because it doesn't worship the same God. I mean, you know, as the true God is one thing to us, but it may mean something different to them. And that's okay. We're going to have to, you know, just knock all the fence down. Now we're just a big, wide-open pasture. That's what the concept of doctrinal relativism is. This is the way the, the world believes around us. This is the way denominations preach. This is the way they, they teach, is that we can't build a fence that we can't draw the line in the sand. Now we know that if we read the Bible, we know that we can and we must know the truth. I know we haven't spent much time so far in the Scriptures. Now we're getting to that. Um, we're going to look at, at what the Bible has to say about truth and how the Bible would, would disagree with the logic of the world. The Bible gives us several warnings, after all. One of those warnings that it gives us is to not think like the world. To not think like the rest of the world. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 20. We'll read 20 and 21. And it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Isn't that what the world around us is doing? They're calling evil good. They're encouraging sin around them by not being willing to draw the line in the sand. And they're calling good those that proclaim the truth, those that say there's an objective standard, they're calling that evil. That's what the world around us is doing. That's the way the world thinks. The Bible tells us not to think like the world. The Bible says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. The Bible tells us we need to think like God. We need to think like the Bible tells us to think. We, we don't need to think like the world around us. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, if you will turn with me there. It says, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Bible tells us do not be conformed to this world. We ought not to think like the way of the world. Also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We ought not to love this world that we live in. We need to realize that the world has its way of thinking and we need to turn the opposite way. That we need to follow God's plan and we need to not think like the way of the world. 
I wasn't planning on, on mentioning this, but uh, as we had the scripture reading this evening, um, you know, Proverbs chapter 3, it went so well with, with this topic. Let's turn over there for a moment. Proverbs chapter 3. We read verses five. We read several of the verses here, but turn with me there to verse five. We're going to read verses five through seven. It says here, "Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding." Isn't that what we've been talking about? The world around us wants to lean on its own understanding. They want to look to themselves for their guidance, for their truth. It says, "In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths." Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. The Bible tells us right there, do not be wise in your own eyes. That's the very concept of what the world is doing around us. They, they have this notion that truth is, is just all relative. And, and what they're really doing is they're looking to themselves for wisdom rather than looking to God. That went so well with this lesson, I couldn't pass up including it. But the Bible also encourages us to not follow the crowd. It warns us that, that once we see ourselves aligned with the way the rest of the world is around us, that that should be a signal flag to us. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read verses 13 and 14. Many of us probably know this passage well. It says there, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. It says right there, broad is the way that leads to destruction. If we see ourselves among the crowd walking in the same direction, that should send us all kinds of warning signals, all kinds of flags. Um, there's a, a quote by Mark Twain. And I don't, I don't encourage everything. I don't believe in everything he says, but... When I heard this quote, too, it went right along with this point. He said, whenever you find yourself on the side of the, of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. I thought that was a great quote, something that he said. You know, when we find ourselves amidst the rest of the world, walking in the same direction, we ought to ask ourselves, are we, in the right, are we going the right way? Are we walking the right direction? We should not follow the crowd. Another thing the Bible warns us to do is to test the Scriptures to test everything that we read. Um, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, we may know this well as, also, is that this is the passage talking about the Bereans and what they were doing. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. It says, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. We need to be like the Bereans. We need to f search the scriptures thoroughly. We need to test the... the the scriptures. We need to test anything that we hear, any doctrine that we hear. We need to test it according to the standard. We need to follow after the Bereans' example. Also, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We see right there that, that the Bible is our authority to make correction. When we see correction that needs to be made around us, when we, when we see others that, that are in the world that are not following the truth, 
the Bible is profitable for things like reproof, as it says here, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We have the authority to, to make righteous judgments when we follow the standard and to draw the line in the sand because we're following after the objective truth that is God's word. Well, another thing that, that we realize from reading scriptures is that truth is something that is attainable. That it's not just this ambiguous notion that's floating out in the middle of nowhere and we can never grasp it. But truth is something that is attainable. We can achieve the, the idea of truth. The Bible tells us so. John chapter 8 and verse 32, if you'll turn with me there. John chapter 8, verse 32. And it says there, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The words of Jesus here tell us we can know the truth. And when we do know the truth, the truth is going to make us free. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17. Ephesians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what this will of the Lord is. It tells us right there that we can understand the will of the Lord. Also Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18 and also uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 tells us that, that God cannot lie. Now, the way to apply this to our topic tonight is God doesn't tell us one thing in his word and then tell someone else in secret something that's completely contradictory. God does not talk out of both sides of his mouth. He doesn't say one thing in his word and then tell someone something directly that completely contradicts what his word says. God gave us his word for us to follow. God doesn't speak to us directly in that way and completely contradict himself. God doesn't lie. God cannot lie. God's not the author of confusion, and, and God's not a respecter of persons. He's not going to tell one person one thing and someone else something completely different. So in that way, we can't say that truth is subjective and that every person can come up with their own version of the truth, because God does not lie. Well, truth is also something that, that we can even look at as, as black and white. And the world around us, believe it or not, actually looks at it in much of the same way. Just like, uh, you know, if, if a college professor of a math class would say there's no absolute truth, then, you know, his students would laugh at him thinking, well, 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's absolute truth, don't you think? Um, you know, I imagine if that teacher, that college professor, were to go up to the math teacher, he'd probably be laughed at right in his face as well. You know, there is things such as truth, and, and the world recognizes that all around us. Um, there's historical statements that the world understands that, that those are absolutely true. Like, you could say George Washington is, is the, was the very first president of the United States. No one disagrees with that. That's a pretty black and white statement. Well, the Bible is filled with historical statements as well. And actually, for the most part, the world around us agrees in, in what these statements have to say. And they recognize truth with historical statements. Like, for instance, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, David was king over Israel. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Those are just historical statements. They actually happened. Um, and, you know, either you agree with it or you disagree with it. It's pretty black and white. Um, and typically the world around us believes in these kinds of historical statements and that they re recognize that truth cannot be refuted in that way. The Bible also has many factual statements, like our statement I just mentioned is, you know, 2 plus 2 is 4, uh, 3 plus 3 is 6, so on and so forth. All of those are factual statements. 
And the Bible is filled with many factual statements. For instance, Jesus fed the multitude with five loaves and two fishes, Mark 6, 38. Acts 2.15, Peter spoke to the multitudes on the day of Pentecost at the third hour of the day. It's a factual statement. As a matter of fact, much of the world around us agrees that those things happened, that, um, that those are, are facts that they take as black and white, and they agree with. Now we start to draw a little bit of a dotted line here between factual statements and, and theological statements. Theological statements, there's still no gray area in them. You either believe them or you do not. Statements such as Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of man's sins. Either you agree with that or you do not. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the church was purchased with Christ's blood. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, Jesus was born of a virgin. The world around us it starts to balk a little bit at, at some of these theological statements, but, but still the world around us agrees that either you believe it or you don't. It's black or white. Well, then, then there's even a bigger bold line drawn between theological statements and doctrinal statements. Now, doctrinal statements, I'm, you know, I'm convinced, and I'm sure that the audience here is, is as well, that doctrinal statements are still stated pretty black and white in the text of the Bible. Now, these are statements like, Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Or Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, talking about there is one body, all those different ones that are mentioned there. Those are, are very black and white statements. But yet, for all the reasons we've already talked about and the way the world perceives the concept of truth, that, that they still push those aside and choose not to believe them. But the bottom line is, truth cannot be refuted. When it's stated in the Bible, it can't be refuted. It's either black or white. You either accept it or you don't. Now, to, to kind of conclude our lesson, um, we need to understand, too, that when we do accept that there's an objective truth in the world, that there's an objective standard by which we must live, then we must also ex expect that there will be error and we have to accept that there is error around us. If we agree that there's an objective truth, then we must agree that anything that opposes that truth is error. For instance, if, if you believe that, that there's one God, and that, that one God is, is, uh, is you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, made up of three parts, and you agree that that is objective truth that we read in the Bible, then if someone comes to you and says that there's you know, only one and that there's only one body, one person in the Godhead, and that's just Jesus, Jesus only, then you must recognize that as error. Because if we do recognize an objective standard truth that, that is three persons in the Godhead, we must reject the oneness doctrine. If we recognize that, that the truth is that, the objective truth is that you must be immersed in the waters of baptism for salvation, then we must recognize that when someone brings a doctrine to us that tells us that baptism can be sprinkling, we must recognize that as error. Because if there is an objective truth, that objective truth is always opposed by error. We have to be willing to draw the line in the sand because that's what, what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible tells us that we can make that judgment because there is an objective truth. We have to be willing to draw the line in the sand. Now, we must come to know the truth, even when the world all around us is going to reject the very concept of the existence of truth. God's truth is found in the gospel message, and to be saved, you have to be immersed in the waters of baptism. 
Now, if you've never done that, you're in a lost condition, but you can make that right tonight. If, now, if you have gone back in the way of the world, you can also make that right tonight as well, through prayer, through repentance. We can help you tonight make anything that you can spiritually right in your life, because now is the only time that we're promised. Now is the only day that we're guaranteed. If there's any way that we can help you this evening, I encourage you to come forward now as we stand and sing.